0: The author of Ruth does an amazing job of pulling you along in this narrative like a roller coaster ride. It's filled with unexpected turns and disorienting loops and emotional swings. And the first few verses of chapter three that Jeff just read for us, if we're paying careful attention, uh, should cause a rising sense of discomfort to us. There's an anxiety, there's a confusion that's building uh, in those first five five verses in particular as Naomi is describing this plan that she has for Ruth and for Boaz. Like what's, what's going on here? Is this beautiful story that we've heard about in these first two chapters heading for some sort of weird disaster? After studying this passage, I'm actually convinced that that's what we're supposed to feel. I think the author of Ruth is trying to create that tension in us as we're reading this to cause us to be like a little bit of trepidation, a little anxiety. Where is this going? It's like hearing the clicks of the roller coaster slowing down as we're heading towards a terrifying plunge. So what I want to do is actually help build that tension a little bit for us. The original audience of Ruth would have been more familiar, probably, with the other narratives that come from the Old Testament, the storyline of redemption, more than us. And so let me just bring three of them to our attention. Let's first think of Noah. Noah in Genesis 9, after the flood waters receded, had gotten off the boat, planted some grapes, had a vineyard, drank too much wine, laid down, and was uncovered in his tent. And the story ends in awkwardness and a curse. Genesis 9. Lot and his daughters in Genesis 19. After Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, Lot's daughters assumed that there were no more men that they would be able to have children with to continue the bloodline. And so they devised a plot to to get Lot to drink wine and lay down in a cave. And this led to both of them becoming pregnant by Lot. Judah and Tamar, Genesis chapter 38. Judah has a daughter-in-law uh, named, named Tamar and her husband who uh, had died, he had passed away. And so there was this custom called Leveret marriage where the brother then was going to step in for that deceased husband to, to marry the widow. Well, then that son of Judah died. And so Judah's like, Tamar, I'm not giving you any more of my sons. Well, that widow, Tamar, devises a plan then to disguise herself as a prostitute, and she tricks Judah into providing a child for her himself. So Tamar actually gives birth to twins, one of whom is named Perez, and Perez actually, according to Ruth chapter 4, was a, a, a grandparent of this worthy man that we've read about in the book of Ruth called Boaz. Now, if these stories have weirded you out, you're in a good place. They are weird stories, they're not good, they're not describing things that are great, and they're all really just different illustrations of the depravity of humanity after the fall. So by the time that we get to Ruth, many generations after Israel has now entered into the land, God's people have been very used to being disappointed by humanity uh, in, in general. I was actually really helped by reading Pastor Josh's demon dissertation the past few weeks about this describing the connection between judges and Ruth, and the presentation of Ruth and Boaz as the ideal man and woman. But we've been off to this great promising start in the first couple chapters with Ruth and with Boaz. Boaz is this worthy man who obeys God's law, provides and protects for this foreign widow who's named Ruth, who's also a worthy woman. She's loyal, she's hardworking, she's upright, and she's respectable. And then we found out at the end of chapter two, the second act of Ruth, that Boaz, this guy, is actually a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, which means that he is a redeemer, which is a theme that we've been singing a lot about this morning because it's very central to our sermon text. So it looks like at this point, there's Ruth and Boaz, he's a redeemer. We should be able to wrap this thing up in the next chapter. Why can't this thing just go very obviously well? They'll get married, they'll start a family happily ever after, right? But chapter three, the third act of this narrative of Ruth, doesn't go quite as smoothly as we might anticipate or maybe even desire. We're going to look at it this morning in three sections, just following along as the scenes are changing. It begins and ends with Naomi and Ruth having a discussion in Naomi's home. And then in the middle, there's an interaction, uh, an intriguing encounter, with Boaz and Ruth on the threshing floor. So we'll follow along on those three scenes as we dive in, but let's pray before we do that. Father, we ask that you would help us to discern your word well, uh, to understand what it means and what it's pointing to, not simply as a, a beautiful story, but as a, something that points us to the truth of the gospel, uh, of your sovereignty and providence and provision, in providing a redeemer, not only for this, this widow Ruth, but for your, your church, who is the bride of Christ. So we pray that we would be encouraged this morning by your gospel here in the book of Ruth. We will pray in Jesus' name, amen. First, scene one of act three, Naomi's unconventional strategy for long-term provision unconventional let me just read verse 1 for us then Naomi Ruth's mother-in-law said to Ruth my daughter should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you so if you remember back to chapter 1 Naomi was concerned about these two daughter-in-laws Orpah and Ruth she wanted them to return to Moab so that they could find rest there that they would be able to find new husbands and they would establish a, a life for themselves Specifically, in Ruth chapter one, verse nine, she says this, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So it's clear now, in this chapter, what, Ruth is des- uh, what Naomi is desiring for Ruth is that she would be able to find a husband. That's what she's still desiring for Ruth now. Now, it's been amazing to be sure in that second chapter, we saw how Boaz has been providing for Ruth in so many ways. She's been able to glean both in the barley and the wheat harvest, even till the end of the harvest season. But she's still living with her mother-in-law at the end of chapter two. It's the last verse of chapter two. It says she's still living there. So, so far, the provision has been great, but it's been temporary. The harvest season is ending. What are we gonna do next? And so Naomi desires a longer-term way for Ruth to be able to have provision and protection. And she knows now, at this point, that Boaz is possibly someone who could be more than just a generous benefactor to Ruth and Naomi. Maybe their relationship could be a little bit more permanent. Verse two, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So the threshing floor is where you would go, where you would take the grain after you've collected it. You beat the grain to separate the the kernels from the chaff. And then you stick a—it's a big pile. You stick a pitchfork in it, throw it up in the air. The chaff blows away because it's light. What remains falls on the ground, and that's the grain. So it's a lot of work. And Boaz is there on the threshing floor, just sort of trying to clean out this grain. And she's trying to figure out now, because Naomi knows he's going to be there, she's trying to figure out how to get their paths to cross again. How can I get Boaz and Ruth's paths to cross again? To try to find sort of. Uh, some circumstance that they might be able to bring up the topic of marriage. It seems like there's this potential of a match between Boaz and Ruth here, but at this point, neither of them seems to be willing to take the first step to take it to the next level. And so Naomi is coming up with a strategy to move things along. Verses three through five. "'Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, "'and put on your cloak.'" and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to him and to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Verse five, and then she replied, all that you say, I will do. So I have questions. Uh, First of all, why couldn't they just go on a hot-air balloon ride and propose like normal people? (laughs) But second, why is she washing and anointing and changing her clothes? Why is she getting dressed up? Why is she going in secret? Usually great things aren't done in secret. Why is she waiting until he goes to sleep after he eats and drinks? Why is she uncovering his feet? Why is she lying down? And what, pray tell, does Naomi expect that Boaz is going to tell her to do next? And why did Ruth agree so quickly? Well, let's just acknowledge that this whole scene is a bit unconventional. Let's just be honest about it right up front. And it is even potentially a little bit shady. What's going to happen here? The author is dropping hints all along the way, with even the word choices, to make you feel like, oh, what's what's going to happen? Like the days of Noah's sons. Is this going to be like Lot and his daughters? Is this going to be like Judah and Tamar? I've got a bad feeling about this. Let me try to paint what I think is going on here. First, why is she washing, anointing with oil, and putting on her cloak? Let's just start there. At first glance, we might assume that she's trying to make herself alluring to Boaz. That's what I would think, just by reading that right off the bat. But I want to suggest that there might be something else that's going on here. Commentators note that these three actions, these three words come together in different places in the Old Testament. And one of those places is in 2 Samuel 12, where King David washes, anoints himself with oil and changes his clothes. This is meant to signify the end of a period of mourning. So this is the period right after King David's son had passed away. Let me just read for us. 2 Samuel 12, 20. This is after he got the word that his son had passed. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed the, his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. So for David, this is how he signified the end of his period of mourning. And it's, it might be that Ruth is still mourning the loss of Malon, her husband that she had married in Moab. We don't know how long it's been since he had passed. So it's possible that she had still been in a period of mourning. But this is something beyond just trying to make herself attractive. Ruth may have been intending to communicate to Boaz nonverbally that she was prepared to enter into a relationship again. Well, what about uncovering his feet? There's some honest degree of confusion uh, and disagreement about how to in- interpret this particular passage. There's even some debate about what the Hebrew word uh, is, behind the word that we have translated in our ESV as feet, like what is, what is, what's going on there? But it's towards the end of the harvest season, okay? So I would imagine it's getting a little more cold. It's starting to get cold at night. And maybe you've had this experience. There's a period of time at the end of the, the summer where it's, it's getting cooler but not cool enough for your air conditioning to kick on. And so you go to sleep and like stick one leg out of the blanket. But then in the middle of the night, it gets cold and you wake up and then you reach down to grab your blanket and pull it back up over you. This is kind of what I anticipate is happening here. Naomi wants Ruth to have a private conversation with Boaz about their future, but she wants Boaz to take the lead in the conversation. And so if he wakes up on his own, because he's cold in the middle of the night and he just sees her laying there, He would have the opportunity to do just that. Now, I know that this is unconventional, but here is the plan as it is set. And I think as we read it, some of the imagery and the visuals will will be clearer to us. Second, redemption promised and sealed with an oath. Verses six through 15. Let me read verses six through seven for us. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So uh, (laughs) Ruth waits until Boaz has finished his work. And now he's had a meal, his heart is merry, he's had a long day of work, right? But it says he's in good spirit. There's no indication that Boaz is drunk here. But he's had a good harvest, full days of work, hearty meal, and now he's off to a good sleep after such a hard day. Perhaps he's keeping an eye on his freshly winnowed grain in the threshing floor, making sure that nobody comes in and steals it and tries to get it away. So you can imagine then when Ruth enters in and uncovers the place of his feet as he's laying there at the grain, she's gotta be nervous, right? What's gonna happen here? Was he going to be angry when he wakes up? What is he going to say? Is he going to try to kick her out? Is he going to do something untoward toward her? Was he gonna, what was he going to tell her to do? Her mind must have been racing uh, and anxious, no doubt, as she's laying there waiting for him to get cold enough to wake up. Verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, I've suggested that it is a strong possibility that Boaz got cold while he was laying there with his legs uncovered, now at the end of the harvest time. He was startled. That word there could just as easily be translated as he shivered. He shivered and he turned over to grab. Is actually what it says. So He shivered, turns over to grab his blanket, and behold, quite a shock, A woman is laying there at his feet. She wasn't there before, but he wakes up, and there she is. And it's the middle of the night, very dark, and so he doesn't recognize her. Boaz doesn't know who she is, but we know who she is. We know that that's Ruth, and actually we know that it's Boaz and Ruth. We know their names. So why does the narrator in verse 8 not mention their names? Why does he just say that it's the man and a woman? Does this picture remind you of anything? There's a man who's fast asleep and wakes up shocked to find a woman. Genesis two, twenty one to twenty two. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept he took one of his ribs and closed it up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. So I understand there's a lot of confusing imagery here in this narrative within Ruth and in this scene, but are you helped in viewing this through this lens of Boaz and Ruth being presented here in narrative form uh, almost as a new Adam and Eve? Both worthy, both upright, both embodying the Lord's loving kindness, his Hased, both seeking to be faithful, both trying to obey God's law. So it looks like there's a promising new start for God's people. This is very different from those other things that we were so concerned were going to happen again. And so now we're, our interest is peaked. What might happen, what might become of this new couple? Verse nine, he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So it's in the darkness in the middle of the night. Boaz doesn't know who she is. He asks for the woman's identity and she tells him who she is and she tells him why she's there. I am Ruth, your servant. Notice that quote, spread your wings over your servant. So this concept should sound familiar of wings and covering. Remember what Boaz told Ruth in the act just before this, Chapter 2, verse 12. Boaz speaking to her says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is chapter 2, verse 12. The word here, translated as wings, could also be translated as the corner of his garment. So, either way, it's symbolic. It is a symbol, a metaphor to symbolize coming under his provision and under his shelter in marriage. She is proposing that they get married. That's what she's asking in that phrase. how How can we be so sure? Seems like we're interpreting a little bit too much there. Well, the same imagery is given to us by the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 16. There the prophet is poetically speaking on behalf of God as God has redeemed his, his people, Israel. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And so we know that the covenant of Yahweh and his people is very much symbolic of the covenant of marriage. It's symbolic of marriage. And it's clarified actually even a little bit more if we keep reading because she calls Boaz a redeemer. Boaz is a redeemer. What does that mean? Well, Israel's law is is meant to work for Israel's common good. And so there is a provision within Israel's law and ordinance that would allow for protection and provision for those who faced a crisis within the community of faith. Someone who might have a debt that they can't cover, someone who has been a victim of injustice, someone who is, uh, perhaps her husband has died and she has no way to provide for herself. According to the ordinance, according to the law, the responsibility for that person would fall on the next of kin. The closest blood relative was obligated to cover any sort of debts. And so that's why it's called a kinsman redeemer. They were supposed to redeem someone out of the trouble that they were in. They had the obligation to cover any debts that that person owed and then to take on the responsibility of whatever properties they had and to take, a, to take over for them. But we don't know, again, how closely Boaz was related to Elimelech Naomi's husband, of course, Elimelech. But it does appear that he wasn't under any actual legal obligation to redeem Naomi or Ruth because he hasn't done it yet. There is this provision out there, but it doesn't seem to be legally binding on him because neither of them have acted yet. But then again, Boaz wasn't required under legal obligation to invite his harvesters to leave a little bit of extra grain for Ruth in the field either. What Boaz has been doing all the way through is embracing the spirit of the law rather than simply the letter of the law. And so when Ruth is requesting that he act in this way as a kinsman redeemer, she's, she's asking that he would embrace the spirit of what that means. Not that he's legally obligated to do so, but he is willing and entering into this relationship. And what we see here again is that relationship between Yahweh's provision through human agents. We have Yahweh's provision through Boaz. Ruth has come to shelter under Yahweh's wings, but really she's, in a material way, sheltering under the wings of Boaz. He's acting as a redeemer only in as much He is an instrument in the true Redeemer's hands. So I want to suggest that in this scene, Ruth is not trying to seduce Boaz, but she's letting him know, she's in a culturally appropriate, though confusing sort of way, that she's available, and she would like for him to marry her. Verses 10 through 11. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. So just to be clear, Boaz has been sending out some subtle vibes too, right? Right? I mean, he was going above and beyond in the first couple chapters there to, to be able to provide for Ruth. Certainly, very kind to her when she showed up on the field. But it seems, based on his reticence and his response here, he assumed that she wouldn't be interested in him because he actually considers her being interested in marrying him an act of kindness. That word again, has said. It's an act of kindness, even more kind than the first act of kindness, which I would take to be that act of kindness that she had shown to Naomi and committing to Naomi. He's like, this is even more gracious and kind than what you showed to Naomi. She could have tried to find a younger husband, but she's been pursuing Boaz, who must have been a good bit older than her, according to what he says. So that anxiety at this point is relieved from Ruth. When she hears the first words out of his mouth, the Lord bless you. May you be blessed by the Lord. What a relief. There was a lot on the line here. I know we're reading it sort of uh, disengaged from the tension of the moment, but this wasn't like a Sadie Hawkins dance invite. There's a lot on the line here when she's asking for him to act as a redeemer. She's in a risky spot, a vulnerable spot. She's been going out on a limb like this. But it appears to be working out. Because Boaz's response is that he's going to, I'm going to do everything you asked. And he does it, again, in part because of her good reputation, which reminds us of chapter two. All of his fellow townsmen, uh, literally all the people within the gate, know that she has a good reputation, they know that she is a woman of worth. Her works have caused people to speak highly of her at the town gates where the people get together to meet again reminding us of that woman whose ideal in proverbs 31 verses 12 and 13 and now it is true that i am a redeemer yet there is a redeemer nearer than i remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you let him do it but if he's not willing to redeem you then as the lord lives i will redeem you lie down until the morning So in typical Boaz fashion, uh, he wants to be completely upright, making sure that he's doing things the right way. He knows that there's someone who is also in town who is actually a closer kinsman redeemer. And so he wants to make sure that he's doing his due diligence. He wants to check with this other person first who would have the first option to act as redeemer for her. But no matter what, Boaz says, you will be redeemed one way or another. The other guy doesn't step up, I will. Don't worry about it, this will be taken care of. And he even gives an oath here. Did you notice that? In verse 13, he says, as the Lord lives, invoking the name of Yahweh, I will redeem you. A sure oath, a promise. And so he tells her to lay down and go back to sleep until the morning. Verses 14 through 15. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you're wearing and hold it out. And so she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. So she went back to sleep, but she woke up now. It's still very dark, Uh, so dark, in fact, that there's not enough light to recognize someone clearly. He was interested in protecting Ruth's reputation. Her reputation was important, and he knew that. And he knew that if she was going to be leaving the threshing floor, it might look a little bit shady. Uh, What happened in the threshing floor? So he says, wake up, little Susie. Head on back home. But before you go, let me give you something. Verse 15, he says, bring the garment that you're wearing and hold it out. So she's wearing some sort of a cloak. Uh, I picture it as sort of like a cross-bodied sash or something. And so he says, hey, bring that over here and hold it out. He wants to give her some grain so she can take it home. So can you visualize this scene? Put yourself in that place. It's dark. He invites her over. He says, hold out your cloak. She holds it out. She's carrying it there, and he lays the seed, six handfuls of whatever, six measures of barley, puts it in her cloak, and you might imagine her carrying that seed in her cloak as she goes back to Bethlehem. Again, paralleling visually, narratively, the connection between the famine of food... And the famine of family. She's wearing this cloak now with the grain inside of it. Perhaps foreshadowing that Boaz has already redeemed her famine of food in a sense. But perhaps a foreshadow of a way that he might redeem the family with the seed. A bun in the oven, if you will. This last sentence here uh, says she went into the city. There's some minor variants in the manuscripts here, uh, and it seems just as likely, if not more likely, that it wasn't Ruth who went into the city here. It wasn't she, but he, that he went back into the city. Boaz went back. He had told her that he would check with the other kinsmen in the morning, and it seems like he just got up first thing and, and pursued that. Uh, he went to go investigate it, went to go check it out. The first verse of chapter 4 says that he's already at the gate, so we can assume that he's left at some point. So here's the picture. Boaz promises to redeem Ruth, unless this other closer kinsman is willing to take up that responsibility, and he promises with an oath that she will be redeemed no matter what, and he gives a token, a guarantee, a down payment, if you will, a gift of his good intentions. I will come through. And then he leaves to go to talk to that other kinsman. And now the scene shifts back to Naomi's house. And verses 16 through 18, the third scene. Patience for the Redeemer's imminent return. Verses 16 through 18. I'll just read those back into our hearing. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law she replied wait my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest but will settle the matter today so ruth returns to naomi with the grain the bundle in her cloak and a story to tell How did it go, Ruth? She explains what happens, and she emphasizes the fact that Boaz was very concerned that Naomi would not be empty-handed. Again, that theme of Naomi being empty and her emptiness turning into fullness as this narrative is developing. Naomi thinks that she came back empty, but she didn't, and it's only becoming increasingly clear as this narrative is developing that she is more full than she even knows and in ways that she can't anticipate yet. But you can see, even just the way that she's speaking, uh, Naomi's cloudy-headed bitterness is parting and turning into like a clear-eyed hope, a great expectation for the future. So Boaz has already gone down to the town gates, I would suggest, the first thing in the morning, to decide who it was that would redeem Ruth. And Naomi knows... Based on what she knows about Boaz, this guy's not going to rest, he's not going to settle down until this matter has been completed, until we have some clarity on exactly what's going to happen that particular day. So one thing really struck me as I've been studying the book of Ruth over the past few weeks, Ruth isn't really mentioned, narratively speaking, in the New Testament anywhere, I know it's in the genealogy in Matthew. Ruth comes up there once, but I couldn't find any other allusions to the narrative of Ruth in the New Testament. I was amazed that it seems none of the New Testament authors or even Jesus himself connected this concept of a kinsman redeemer to Christ. But it almost seems like it's hard not to make the connections, right? Boaz the kinsman redeemer, was from the tribe of Judah. He was from Bethlehem. He was good and strong and worthy and kind. He faithfully keeps the law. He redeems a bride who comes from the nations. And he helps the helpless by redeeming them out of their sorrow, providing for them abundantly at great cost to himself, who shelters all those who come to the Lord under his wings. One commentator notes that this kinsman redeemer points to Jesus in a few ways. First, he must be a blood relative. He must be a blood relative. And of course, we know that Jesus came in his incarnation as a blood relative. Second, he must have the resources to cover the debt that is owed. And of course, we know that the precious blood of Christ is of infinite value and worth, able to redeem. Third, he must become a redeemer willingly. And Jesus willingly laid down his life for his friends. Fourth, he enters into a covenant marriage relationship, which is what every marriage is meant to point to, the relationship between Christ and his church. So I suggest that the big idea of this third act of Ruth is this. Christ, our kinsman redeemer, secures rest, and guarantees security. As great as the story of Ruth and Boaz is, cute though it is, it is just a small taste of a greater divine romance. They might be presented here as this hopeful new Adam, new Eve, but even at their best, they're simply pointing forward to someone better. The second Adam And his bride, the church. A humbled outsider becomes the object of mercy and grace at the hands of a powerful and blameless Redeemer. Is that not all of our testimonies? Uh, Not just the book of Ruth. If you're not a Christian, but this story touches you in some way, its goodness, its beauty, I want to encourage you to recognize and to consider that there is an even better story that doesn't take place in a land far away in a time that we're unfamiliar with. A story of redemption and restoration that could include you in real time here and now, both body and soul. Brothers and sisters, Christ accomplished redemption and he has gone to prepare a place for us and he will not rest until the matter is settled He will return to consummate all things that he has begun. But in the meantime, he has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit to comfort, to guide, until the morning dawns. Jesus will not rest until our salvation is accomplished. Take heart. Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.